0: Let's bow in prayer. Father, the words are so amazing that, uh, that I think, God, sometimes we don't cherish them like we should. Help us, Father, to never ever lose sight of how precious our salvation is. That we were enemies and now we're sons and daughters. Amazing. I pray today, God, that we will be able to um, understand even further and deeper what freedom in Christ means. May your spirit enlighten us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Could you open up to Galatians chapter 5, please? We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Galatians 5. And as you do, I need to admit something. As your pastor, I am for, like William Wallace says, freedom. Freedom. You like that? I could say it's God. Freedom. Like that. But who isn't, honestly? Who isn't for freedom? Everywhere is freedom these days. Sexual freedom, religious freedom, economic freedom, marital freedom, gender freedom, internet information freedom. And now, even suicidal freedom is in vogue. Doesn't matter where you're from or what you believe, everyone, everyone is pro-freedom. I mean, who's not, well, of course, I'm not including angry white male patriarchs. I'm not including them. I'm leaving them off the list. But it's cool these days to be free. It always has been cool. Actually, even Satanists are for freedom. Did you see last week that really cool statue they put in Detroit? Did you see that? Anybody see that? It was really kind of weird, actually. But they're for freedom, too. We should be cheering that because we're for freedom. As all of us put our fists in the sky like William Wallace and shout freedom, however, I'm not sure we are all meaning the same thing. So what is freedom, what is it? If you look up a definition for it or if you ask people in a coffee shop, the most agreed upon answer I think for freedom would be this right here. Freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. It's the right, it's the power to act, to speak or think the way I want to It means doing whatever I dang well please. I'm an American. You Gotta say it like that. It's a free country. So let me be, and like the colonists said, don't tread on me. That's freedom. So let's say I'm hungry and I decide to walk into Speedway. I see candy, chips, donut, 44-ounce Slurpee. I can buy whatever I want, right? That's freedom, absolutely. So after I buy my Slurpee, I go out to my car. And I notice that the gas prices have gone up. And I say to myself, man, my tap water at home is a lot cheaper than this gas. I'm not going to fill up here. I'm going to wait till I get home and fill up with tap water. I'm free to do that, right? Yeah, but that's kind of stupid. It'd destroy my car. But I'm free, so I can do that. So as I get into my car, I see a person walking down the sidewalk I really have never liked. Would freedom allow me to hit them with my car? Sure it would. I am free. Yeah, but it would be wrong. I don't care. I'm free. Yeah, but why would I use my freedom to take away my freedom? That's really kind of idiotic and cruel and wicked. Well, now after I hit the guy, let's say I hit the guy. He's lying there dead on the sidewalk. I pull out and cop cars come screaming from either way. And I decide I'm going to pull my car over, step out of my car, and start flapping my arms and fly away. Because I'm free, right? I can fly it. No, I'm not free to fly away. I'm limited. So I'm not totally free then, am I? Just by saying I am for freedom doesn't really say anything at all. It's kind of a cool catchword these days. I must define freedom a little more. And this is especially true when it comes to my walk with Christ. Some Christians who claim to be living free may actually be living in slavery. So our task today is to really understand chapter 5. This is an amazing chapter. We're going to look at 14 verses, but I'm just going to read a couple and then we'll go into it. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, We eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value whatsoever. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Then jump to verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful flesh. Rather serve one another in love the entire law is summed up in a single command love your neighbor as yourself we have arrived at the section now where paul is going to bring practical outworkings of grace to the galatian church and the first thing he says in verse one if you notice is it is for freedom that christ has set us free and he says Stand firm in this condition of freedom. Stand firm. It's a must. Freedom, in this verse, means on the, what I would say, on the passive side, to somebody releases you from jail. You're released from chains. On the active side, now you are given the right and you're given the power to live a self-determined life under God on your own, the way you choose. I'll state that again. What freedom means... On the passive side, what we don't do to ourselves, but what God does to us is he sets us free from chains, bondage. On the active side, he gives us the right and the power to live a self-determined life under him. Romans 14.12 says it like this. Each of us will have to give an account of himself to God. Each of us will have to give an account of himself, of their individual selves, to God alone. Your parents don't, your grandparents don't, your church doesn't, you do. You are free, but you are also responsible. So Paul is going to flesh out what freedom is in the rest of this section. He's going to give you examples of what it is not and then what it is. What freedom is not and then what it is. So we're going to begin with what freedom is not. He's very clear. Freedom is not, it is not going back to obedience to the law. Listen at verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Slavery in this case is in reference to the Mosaic codes, traditions, and ceremonial observances we have been smashing and ripping apart the four chapters before this. We've been talking a lot about this. And you're probably getting tired of this. But he's saying, stop it, no more. And the reason why, he's gonna give us two reasons why the law is so bad, is because the whole law is a system of slavery. It's a comprehensive system of slavery. In other words, you can look at it like this. If you follow the law, you can't choose what part of the law you're going to obey. It's not your right. You must follow the whole thing. And you know the whole thing is slavery. Look at verses 2 and 3. Mark my words. Paul says, listen to me. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to, to obey the whole law. That's a huge, huge statement. It's huge. See, the Judaizers were trying to get the Galatians to accept the law in stages. In chapter 2, we talked about kosher food laws. Chapter 4, we talked about Sabbath day, obedience to the Sabbath days. And now, really, throughout the whole book of Galatians, he's been talking about the rite of circumcision. Apparently, the Galatians didn't go that far yet. They were considering it. And Paul says, if you go that route, it won't stop there. The law is an all or nothing thing. One writer put it like this. The believer in this age of grace is obligated to obey either all of the law or none of it. If he feels that he is obligated to obey only parts of it, the ones he chooses to, By what rule is he using to choose? If he were to isolate certain parts of the Old Testament law as binding upon Christians and then disregard others as purely Jewish in their application, what is his criteria for doing so? It becomes arbitrary. And Levitical law is anything but arbitrary. Let me give you an example. When I was a youth pastor, I was playing basketball with a rather reckless student in the old blue gym. Mark Rawson Jr.'s name will be left out of this. Every time, every time, every time I went up for a layup, he tried to tackle me, every time. I asked him, are we playing basketball or football? He said, we're playing basketball, man. Again, I went up for a layup. He tried to tackle me again. I said, Mark, are we playing basketball or football? Basketball, okay, I just, I just want to get that straight. So I went up for a layup again and he tried to tackle me. I said, well, it looks like we're playing football. Every time he got the ball, I would smash him into the wall of the blue gym. I'd just smash him pretty hard. He'd go, dude, what are you doing? Well, you, you are apparently playing football, so so am I. In other words, you can't pick and choose the way to play a game. If you're gonna play basketball, You can't tackle me. You're playing football. You've got to play by their rules. In the same way with the law, if you choose to play by its rules, you just can't pick some and throw others out. You've got to play by them all. That's what Paul's saying. That's huge. That's huge. And we'll get into it a little bit later. Why? Also, secondly, about the law, if you choose the law, really you're cutting yourself off from the life of Christ. The law is not connected to the life of Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. That means separated. You're not in camp with him anymore. He's out of your, he's out of relationship with you. You're alienated from him. And then it says this. um, You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. The life of godliness is through the Spirit, by faith. Verse 4 confuses a lot of people because he hints that maybe you can lose your salvation, fall from grace. But that's really not what he's talking about. Listen to what one commentator said. The Galatian Christians had lost their hold upon grace for daily living daily living, which heretofore had been ministered to them by the Holy Spirit, meaning they already had connection with the Holy Spirit, but they were losing connection in their daily life because they were going back to the law. God's grace, it continues on, manifests itself in three ways, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Because they had lost their hold upon sanctifying grace, it does not mean that God's grace had lost its hold upon them in the sphere of justification. The transaction was closed and permanent at the moment they believed. Justification is a judicial act of God done once and for all. Here's what he's saying. Once you are saved by faith in God, he will always keep his promise. It's an initial position of justification. God declares you righteous. You You are sitting at his right hand when you come to him by faith. However, he wants you to continue living by faith in order to have the Holy Spirit alive in your life. That's called sanctification. The process of becoming more and more righteous. If you try to live by the law, you are cutting off the work of the Spirit because he is only apprehended by faith. That's what verse 5 says. Listen to it again. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Righteousness is God's Rightness, his perfection, his goodness. And we wait for it by faith. And it's administered by the Holy Spirit. Not by us working. That's what he's saying. Remember the law was meant to condemn you. It was meant to wear you out so you'd only have one place to go. Christ. Now I want you to think with me a little bit because he's going to bring up an interesting statement verses 7 through 12. He's saying something very profound. Let me read it, and then I'll I'll try to boil it down. He says, you were running a good race, in verse 7. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Meaning they were walking with Christ, great, through the Holy Spirit. But these Judaizers came in and brought in the law and cut them off. And in verse 8, he said, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. That's not from God. You see, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. We'll get in that in a second. Then he says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other, other view. He's, he's encouraging them to ignore them and hang on to the Holy Spirit. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Then verse 11 is a biggie. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. The cross of Christ is is offensive. It's meant to be offensive because it destroys a lie that I think all of us have been taught from birth. I call it the lie of the little bit. The cross destroys this lie. What is the little bit? Verse 9 says a little yeast, a little bit of yeast, will work its way through the whole batch of dough. It will cause all the bread to rise, this little bit of yeast. little bit of yeast always refers to pride, self. And if you have even just a little bit, it'll start working its way through the whole dough. And so inside the human heart is this belief that God wants me to do my best as if I even had a best to give, which I don't. Inside the human heart, I have to do my best even if it's a little bit. And when I give him my little bit, he will bless me. Listen listen to this statement by Gerhard Ford. He says, general consensus, that means if you would just go around and ask Christian people. They believe if we try to do our best, even if it's only a little bit, by what I wear, going to church on Sunday, being a good Christian, giving, I just do my best, we can be assured that God will not fail to give us the desired grace. That's what, this is, this, it's a lie. It's the lie of the little bit. And what happens is it makes a mockery of the cross and the true price that must be paid to receive the favor of a perfectly holy God. Have you ever watched American Idol or America's Got Talent? I'm sure you have. It's an American phenomenon. I know Mike has watched it. I know he has. The way it is designed is to have three or four judges listen to a singer and then decide if they're good enough to go on and move on. Every once in a while, you'll get a person who's really bad who thinks they're really good. Have you ever seen a real bad person that hits a note like this? Ah! And they got a mom that, oh, that was great. <laughs> like that. And then they go up to the judges, and then the judges will, after the performance, say, how do you think you did? How do you think you did? 10 times out of 10, they'll say this. Oh, <laughs> I wanted this for my whole life. That's not my question. How do you think you did? I thought I did spectacular. I gave it my all. I tried so hard. That's almost every response. I tried so hard. They will say, honestly, you were really bad. And you know what I miss is Simon Cowell, because he wouldn't just say that. He would have that English accent. He'd go, you know what? Love, you were terrible. You were just horrible. Get off the stage. Never come back again. You were terrible. And then the crowd would boo because the crowd does not judge by truth anymore. We judge by sentimentality. We won't like anybody to feel bad. But Simon would say, I don't care. She was just terrible. Just terrible. The law and the cross say to us, you are terrible. You are horrible. In your flesh and in the pride of your little bit, you are really, really bad. You come nothing compared to how good Jesus is. You are nowhere near Him. Nowhere. Yeah, but I'm giving God my best. I'm trying really hard. I want this so bad. You have to obtain perfection. The law is designed to show you how bad you are and how desperately you need Christ, not giving you a way to work to God through hard work. People don't like to be told they are wretched, they don't like to be told they're pitiful or poor or blind or naked. That is why Paul says the cross is an offense. It's an offense. It makes the pride of people, that little bit, rise up like yeast and fight back. I can do it. But to prove his point, listen to verse 12. Verse 12 is very offensive. Listen to what Paul says. As for those agitators, those Judaizers, those ones who say you need to be circumcised, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Do you know what he's saying? it's bad he's basically saying if you think you can obtain anything even even by being circumcised why don't you just go cut off your you know what and then see how much good that does for you man i don't want to say the p word in here i'd get thrown out that's what he's saying cut it off it does nothing for you nothing Let's get practical. Let's take it one step further. Some people in the Christian church say they follow the Sabbath. And here's what they usually mean. They mean, I take a nap on Sunday, I don't cut the grass on Sunday, and I do not work on Sunday. Did you know that's not a Sabbath even close? Well, 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 what I mean by that is I'm following the principle of the Sabbath and it's, I know the principles for my good. If that's, your, if that's why you're doing it, that's fine. I have no problem. But don't tell me it's something you must do to please God. That's your arbitrary Sabbath. You're making that up. It's a mockery of how the Levitical Sabbath living was really meant to be lived. The real Sabbath is a weight you cannot carry. It's impossible. So either you give up, and you come to Christ or go the whole way and try to be as perfect as you can be. And what that means is don't just do the Sabbath. You can't eat pork anymore. Not only that, you better start raising animals to sacrifice them. You've got to do the whole law. Or you can run to the cross where everything was fulfilled and it was finished. So first of all, freedom is not slavery to the law. Secondly, freedom is not Look at verse 13. It is not allowing license in your life, just doing whatever you want to do. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Remember the first definition I gave you for how I think the world would answer freedom? The power and right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. And some Christians say, since grace is available, I can do anything I want because God will forgive. I want you to hear a quote from the mouth of Christ. This is John 8. Look at verse 834. Jesus replied. Listen to what he says. Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Does he say anything about freedom? He's saying, actually, if you go and sin and think you can just do whatever you want, you're a slave. That's not freedom. Sin is corruption. It's not freedom. It's slavery. It's rottenness of the soul. Sin is Satan's bait to catch you. Sin separates me from the life of God. Sin is what incites murder, rape, theft, lust, anger, hatred, and death. Jesus didn't die so you can keep indulging in sin. He died to stop it from destroying you. Paul says in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin so grace may abound? You know, if I, if I keep sinning, grace will keep getting bigger. And then he says, God forbid. May it not ever be so you probably heard the old story, I, I love this story, so you might have heard it, but I want you to listen to it again, of the boy who went fishing around alligators. He loved to fish around alligators. The dad told him, however, if you do, stay on the dock, because if you get in a rowboat, alligators could knock you in and pull you under. So the son went out to the dock. There's no thrill, however, in the dock, so he did. He looked this way, his dad didn't look, and he went into the rowboat. After a couple hours, he felt some thumps on the bottom of the boat. Man, that's fun. All of a sudden, a giant alligator flipped the boy's boat, and he had the son wrapped in his tail. Right before the sun went under, he screamed, Dad! The dad came running with the knife. Jumping in to save his son, he plunged the knife deep in the alligator's gut, but not before the alligator was able to rip off both of the dad's legs. The alligator sunk into the miry depths. The dad was still alive, however, he was losing blood fast. So the son pulled his dad to shore, and as he lay in the sand bleeding and the life was draining from his face, the son looked deep in his dad's eyes. Dad. Dad. Can I go back out in a rowboat? There's a lot of excitement out there. huh jesus died for my sins amen is it okay if i go party some more what jesus jesus got spit on in the face and they put a crown of thorns on his head it's okay if i lust and sleep with somebody that's not my wife right what it's okay if i swear and i i keep watching the same stuff i watch it's okay right really That's not freedom, that's sick. So we talked about the negative side of freedom, what it is not, what's the positive side? The positive is great, and that's what I want to end by focusing on. Paul gives us a short but sweet synopsis of what true freedom is, verse 13 and 14. You, my brothers, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge your in sinful nature, Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 6 is the same thing. Verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is any value. The only thing that counts. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The best way to put it, that phrase right there, is this is what I believe he's saying. This is what pleases God. Love fueled faith. Because I'm overwhelmed by what he did for me, all I can do is obey him out of that same love that he's given me. Love is an amazing thing. It's a many splendored thing, as they say. But the love in this passage is not the trivial eros love, the lust love. This is not the middle of the road phileo brotherly love out of respect. It's agape. Verses 6 and 13 and 14 is the agape love of God. God's love. It's the high-octane brand of love that transforms a normal schlep like me into a servant of the living God. Agape love is power. And it's this kind of power that causes me first to forget about myself for the sake of others. Agape love crucifies my flesh, it kills it, and it finds its joy in other people's joy. In the gospel, there's a story, I'm sure you've heard of it, where the Jewish rulers, teachers, and scribes, they asked Jesus. In Mark 12, or 12, 28 to 31, and these were the scribes, very lawful, people that really took a lot of pride in their little bit. Of all the commandments, Jesus, uh, which is the most important? Said it in a very prideful way. Great question. Jesus' reply is simple to me, almost too simple. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I think the end of that answer All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments is the important part. Meaning, all of the law and the prophets hang on love. They are dependent upon love to make them work. Without love, not only can we not accomplish them or they will not be accomplished, but they will be empty, empty gestures that only show a hollow show for people to see and have no use. 1 Corinthians 13, if I, if I can move mountains by faith, if I can give to the poor, if I can heal, but I have not love, I am a clanging symbol, useless. So how does love work? How does agape love compel obedience? How does it fuel my faith? Instead of, instead of diagramming it for you, I'm just going to point out you know it already you know exactly what it looks like already. It's very obvious, you see it every day. For instance, why would a mom get up at two o'clock in the morning to comfort a crying baby and sacrifice her need for sleep? Love. Why would a father take his well-earned paycheck and give it to his wife, so she can use it to buy diapers, laundry detergent, fingernail polish, socks, doodads and knick-knacks, Tupperware and candles, when he could save up that money and buy a 1965 cherry apple red Mustang he's been wanting his whole life. Love. Why would a young, engaged couple who comes to get counseling be willing to forego sex before they get married in a sex-crazed world, love for each other? But yeah, but isn't love doing it? No, that's called lust. Love waits because love's the best thing and does what's best for the other person. Why would, why would my mom and dad sacrifice their weekends as a young married couple to take their three-year-old daughter to many different hospitals around Southern Ohio while doctors stuck needles in her arm day after day after day? Why would they continue to feed her meals and change her diapers every single day for over 55 years. Why would they not put her in a home and be done with her? They love her. Why would any old body obey the Word of God when the world thinks they're absolutely crazy? Love for Christ. Faith fueled love. Faith expressing itself. Belief expressing itself in love. I just love Him. So I'll obey him. If you have love, not only will you have no problem pleasing God, but you'll finally be able to live the way you've been designed to live. You will be a mature, fully functioning human being. You will be grown up and you will be truly free. Truly free. I want you to, uh, I want to end this discussion on freedom by having you take a look at this picture. Take a look at this picture. and ask yourself, is this real freedom? Is this person really free? You could say, yeah, and and, no, yeah, in a sense. He he doesn't need a plane to fly through the air. He's doing it on his own. He's not constrained by a seatbelt. He he doesn't have to listen to the advice of his mom who told him, say, you don't leave this firm ground. You're an idiot, Johnny, for jumping off mountains. He's free from her rule. So he goes up to the top of the mountains, able to soar through the air, dive through the clouds. He's he's free, in a sense. In a sense, he's not free whatsoever because he has something on his back. It's called a parachute. It's a device that will sustain him and will carry his fall where he never gets hurt. The parachute's what gives him the confidence to jump. The parachute what gives him the confidence to jump. Jesus, faith in him, he is our parachute. He is the one that allows us to soar without the constraints of the law, without the constraints of other people's expectations. He gives me the freedom to be who I am without crashing and burning in sin. He's amazing. The question is, do you have him? And are you free? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Galatians 5. Thank you for Christ. We, we're amazed. And it's in his name we pray, amen.